Welcome to episode number five of Monopoly's Killed My Hometown. I'm Andrew Cameron, and I live in Amherst, Nova Scotia. So in this podcast, I'm exploring how our decision to change our competition laws in the 1980s has led to the decline of small towns and small businesses by looking at my experiences growing up and then moving back to Amherst, Nova Scotia. Ultimately, I want our small towns, small businesses, and people to have more control and agency over their own lives and futures. When we are governed by corporations headquartered elsewhere, we can lose that control and hope. So this episode is part two of me working through the article, Trade Secrets of the Combines Detectives by Peter C. Newman in the May 24th, 1958 edition of McLean's Magazine. So in part one, I started to look at the history of McLean's Magazine and ended up down a rabbit hole about the merger of Rogers Communication Incorporated and McLean Hunter Limited in 1994. I looked at some of the claims that were made at that point and I thought through how I see it impacting and ultimately leading to the demise of local news and removing the way that communities can talk to each other. So check out part one above, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But first I want to talk about the author, Peter C. Newman. So Peter C. Newman is a legendary Canadian author and journalist who was made an officer of the Order of Canada in 1978 and a companion in 1990. Newman's written over 30 books focused on Canadian politics and business, and he was also the editor of the Toronto Star and Maclean's Magazine. So Newman was born in 1929 in Vienna, Austria, and fled to Canada in 1940 as a Jewish refugee. He was eventually educated at Upper Canada College, which is the most prestigious all-boys private school in Canada. I mean, it's the elite of the elite. I'll put a link to this below, but if you take a look at the last names of some of the famous alumni, Weston, Rogers, Eaton, you know, it's also produced 11 premiers and mayors, 22 parliamentarians, musicians, sports stars, etc. It's the elite training ground in Canada. And so we'll say the Canadian elites are the people that Peter C. Newman wrote his articles and books about, right? I was helping clean out my parents' attic and I found a box of my grandfather's old books. And they were full of Peter C. Newman's books, especially the Canadian Establishment, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Uh, these were two of Newman's most popular books where he wrote about the Canadian business families that dominated the Canadian economy. And he wrote a third edition in 1998, after my grandfather had passed away, or I'm certain I would have found that one in my grandfather's box of books too. So Peter C. Newman wrote about Lester B. Pearson, John Diefenbaker, the Bronfmans, who, if there's Americans out there, uh, they're out of Montreal. I think they were the owners of Seagram's Whiskey and they owned the Montreal Expos for a while too. And in 2005, Newman released the book, The Secret Mulrooney Tapes, about Prime Minister Brian Mulrooney. This led to Mulrooney suing him and declaring that he was betrayed by a friend. So as the old quote goes, Peter C. Newman had no problem afflicting the comfortable. All right, let's get down to this article. This was one of the first articles I actually read about the Combines Investigation Act and competition policy in Canada. So where I want to start with this one is I want to start by summarizing all the Combines and the anti-competitive actions that were identified in this article. Okay, so to quote from page five of this article. Justice Department agents 
agents have uncovered price-fixing agreements among the manufacturers and distributors of such commodities as oatmeal, fruits and vegetables, coffins, car accessories, matches, wire fencing, galoshes, quilted goods, eyeglasses, tires, flour, gasoline, bread, coal, cigarettes, toilet paper, and false tea. So that's quoting from the article. And to me, that's a solid list, but there's more to all of this. So again, this will sort of be point form taken from this article. But in 1948, the Combine's investigators launched a full-scale investigation of Canadian writing, blotting, and book papers. Uh, 1947 investigation into the manufacturers of dental supplies found they forced dentists to charge a 100% markup on the plastic used in false teeth. A 1952 investigation of electrical wire and cable manufacturers found the suggested price lists were sent around on oilskin paper without any letterhead. I'm assuming that's very easy to erase. And quoting from the article, senders identified themselves by signing the first initial of their surnames. But even this recognition symbol was dropped as soon as the correspondents learned to discern each other's typewriter styles. Another investigation in 1957 discovered that Toronto and Montreal quilting companies were setting sales quotas for their firms. So these were small businesses doing this one. And so any quilting company or store who oversold their quota had to pay into an association kitty, depending on how much extra they sold. And there's a lot more to this, but like some stores hired private detectives to investigate and follow other quilting stores to see how much they were overselling. Like they were going to the extremes to enforce this. In 1957, 11 shingle manufacturers paid fines for operating a combine since 1932. Uh, the one that blows me away is that there's 11 shingle manufacturers at that point. I think like in Canada, we're down to three or four. Anyways, continuing on again from this article. An eight-year investigation into eyeglasses found the American Optical Company held patents on the most popular frames. And so the American Optical Company forced optometrists to charge $15 for glasses that cost $5.80. And so I find the solution to this combine and this anti-competitive behavior was very interesting. So the Justice Department applied and had all the patents held by the American Optical Company on these glasses frames moved into the public domain. This way other companies could use those patents and increase competition. This was an international one that's frightening, but the medicine to treat malaria before the synthetics were created was made from the bark of Javanese kinchona trees. And so the dominant quinine producing companies would burn half the harvest of this bark to keep the prices high. This one is probably my favorite because it seems so odd nowadays, but it would have been essential in this time frame. There was a wooden matchstick cartel. And so today we... We have lighters, we have all sorts of things where we don't rely on matchsticks, but back then they would have been essential. So at one point, Swedish millionaire Ivar Kruger owned enough plants that he produced 65% of the world's matchsticks. So in 1923, he bought a plant in Quebec, then he bought another company and formed the Eddie Match Company. And this new company was Canada's only wooden match producer. And so if a new plant opened and wanted to create wooden matchsticks, the Eddie Match Company would flood their market with cheap matches to drive them out of business. Uh, this is called predatory pricing and it is on the abuse of dominance statues that today you get like a reprimand and a fine. Also, I'll link to this. This is also what Amazon did to diapers.com in 2000, 2001. So in 1929, a factory opened in St. John's, Quebec. So Eddie sold their underpriced brands in that market. And after three years, the plant in St. John's had to declare bankruptcy. And guess what? 
The Eddie Match Company secretly bought that plant and operated it as the Commonwealth Match Company, not the Eddie Match Company. So this way it appeared there was competition in the market, but all the match producers were owned by the same company. And this is absolutely what's happening around now. Like you go to the grocery store and you think there's competition, but you start looking like, take the cereal aisle, there's like two or three companies that make it all. Anyways, I'm going to link to a fantastic report the American Economics Liberties Project created showing which companies own how many different brands. All right, so stick with me. I think there's three or four more to go. So in 1955, an investigation of Canadian Breweries Limited was completed. So Canadian Breweries Limited had bought 30 breweries since 1930 in order to pursue their strategy of dominating the beer industry. There's the 1935 Stevens Commission, or it's also known as the Price Spreads Report. And we're going to come back to this. I love that report. Anyways, they found there were combines in the glass and rubber industries. And the glass industry was cut up into different territories. You know, the American producers would sell in this part of the country. The Dutch would sell in this part of the country. The Stevens Commission found that rubber footwear makers had elaborate sales quota and arrangements to charge the same prices. And they found that the Toronto Fire Department received four identical quotes on fire hoses. Here's another good one. In 1947, Ottawa removed price controls on flour. And then the Millers all raised prices the exact same amount. And so the investors went in to investigate and they wanted all of the official association minutes and they got them, but they didn't show anything about the price discussions. And so the investigators determined that these were fake minutes and eventually found the real minutes. And unsurprisingly, the actual minutes had lots of discussion on price setting. And so Peter C. Newman shares this story from an American colonel that was in charge of building the Alaskan highway. The American colonel in charge of purchasing found that six Canadian flour mills had submitted identical bids. He took a deck of cards out of his desk and after several cuts, eliminated four of the six millers. Then he and a lieutenant cut the deck again. The King of Diamonds won the round for Quaker Oats by beating out the 10 of spades, which had turned up for Lake of the Woods milling. Whew, okay. So that was a large list of discovered combines and price fixing agreements. And to me, I look back and I go, we found all these when we were actually doing active investigations and market studies, but we're not doing those today. You know, in one of the reports that Robin Chabon and Bass Bedner wrote, they talk about the fact that the Competition Bureau can't go out and do market studies, right? So if all these combines were happening when we were doing active investigations, I cringe about what's probably actually happening when we're not actively looking. Because again, in this article, Peter C. Newman shares the investigators have convicted 200 business firms over the last 50 years, so about four a year, and in 1957, 1958, they did 100 investigations. You know, we're not doing 100 investigations of firms a year now, and I don't even know if we can get the stats on how many investigations we do because they're all private. Like, we don't get the public findings of the investigations and so my understanding is today we need to actually wait for complaints to be filed by other businesses or people before an investigation can begin. Whereas according to this article in 1958, most investigations were actually started by T.D. McDonald, the director of investigation and research. Right. And this is one of the things that baffles me. So for those 50 years, we averaged four convictions a year when we were actually investigating and we actually had more serious punishments. Because remember in episode two, I looked at under the abuse of dominance, other than there's one that can have criminal charges, the rest have fines and prohibition orders. But back then we had more serious punishments. 
But now we assume these things aren't happening in our economy. And I don't understand this logic. It's not like people or business people have changed in the last 70 years. We're all still the same. And there's two quotes from this article and another one that kind of reinforces this to me. So quoting from the article, The maximum penalty of $10,000 for profiteering under the Combines Act is not enough, Diefenbaker said while in opposition. If we told people engaged in robbery, we would take a percentage of what they get. We would not be discouraging robbery. So that's the first quote. Next one is a quote from Adam Smith, again from the article. Adam Smith is the oldest Scottish economist. He wrote The Wealth of Nations. So his quote. People of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion. But the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public. And there's a third quote that I'm going to paraphrase because I can't find it. But if somebody knows where it is, can you let me know? Hit me up Twitter, email, wherever. So once an industry is small enough to sit around a table, it will sit around a table. And so we've got a situation where, like Diefenbaker is saying, we're essentially letting people keep a percentage of what they rob or keep a percentage of what they gain from an anti-competitive behavior. We've let industries consolidate to the extent of being able to sit around a kitchen table, right? Like our big telecom, we're debating whether we need to maintain four telecom companies in the country with the Rogers Shaw merger, right? So that's small enough. They could sit around a pub table. And like Adam Smith says, we know they don't get together for fun. But we're also not doing active investigations, going out and doing market studies and looking at and seeing what's happening. We're just assuming everything's good and waiting on somebody to come tell us that it's not right. And we need to free our commissioner and the Competition Bureau. And we need to start doing more market studies and we need to start going out and investigating industries and businesses to see what the level of concentration is and see what sort of anti-competitive behaviors are actually happening out there. So like Bass coined a while ago, we need to hashtag free Boswell. He needs to be given the power and the Bureau needs to be given the power to compel information and start investigations. Because we need to move away from relying on people that are being hurt to file a complaint. Like thinking that works to me is like misunderstanding power dynamics in society. And I think of it like like a schoolyard. You know, why don't the other kids tell on the bully? I mean, that's what all the adults want them to do. Just, you know, if you see somebody being bullied, come, come tell an adult and we'll deal with it. But in my mind, the kids don't tell on the bully because it's a power thing again, right? So if, they, if the kid tells on the bully, but the adults don't step up and provide enough punishment or deterrence to stop the behavior, what happens next? The kid who told is going to be on the receiving end of the bullying as well. And like I said before, we don't have enough punishment under the abuse of dominance section to stop businesses from continuing this behavior. So if you're a business that is reliant on a large competitor, you know, either a supplier or a distributor or an online platform, are you going to step up to tell on them? Probably not, right? Because a prohibition order and a small fine is not going to stop them. And more than likely, you are going to feel some of those repercussions of having told on them, right? So we as the adults, the competition bureau, need to go out into the schoolyard and start looking for that bullying that's happening and not waiting on kids coming to tell us. You know, the other thing that I think with this, though, is actually the bureau taking an active role to going out and investigating and looking to see what's happening will actually help decrease the prevalence of anti-competitive behaviors right off the bat. 
And the reason I say that is because I think this really works with payroll and HST filings with Canada Revenue Agency, right? So in our business, we've had a payroll remittance audit and an HST audit done. Uh, we were in compliance for both of them, but going in, I was, you know, I was 95% certain we were, but there was a 5% where I was just kind of, ah, did I miss something? Did I make a mistake? Is that going to cost me a lot of money? So because of the fact that they can come look at our HST books and our payroll books almost any time, I'm going to make sure that I'm doing my best to stay in compliance with all those rules and legislation and laws, because I don't want to do anything that's going to kind of put a red flag on us to have Canada Revenue Agency come back in and look. And I think that would apply again for competition issues. You know, if business is new, they could be investigated pretty much any time by the bureau or the commissioner. I think a lot of businesses would think twice about committing some of these anti-competitive acts and some of these things we don't want to see in our economy and in our business world. Um, because one thing we do need to talk about with these is these investigations and cases are long. I'd love to have some way to do it faster. I have no idea how you could do it or not, but they take a long time. And this is a downside and a detriment, especially as technology is moving so fast and things are changing so quickly and so rapidly, right? So for one example, uh, this is about the paper combine that was discussed in this article. So the investigation was launched in 1948. The investigation took three years to complete. Then there was two years of hearings to gather oral evidence. The report was issued in 1952. The trial started in 1954. Uh, most of the companies were found guilty and filed an appeal in 1956. And the Supreme Court issued a judgment in 1957. So to recap, the combine was formed in 1935. The investigation started in 48. The trial started in 54. And the final appeals were done in 57. So it was basically 22 years from the start of the combine to the completion of the trial. That is a long time, and I don't know how we do it better or improve on it because we have to be so thorough in them, but something needs to happen here. But it gets back to the investigations as the deterrence. This would take a lot of time and money from the company. Same with like when preparing for a payroll audit or an HST audit, that takes a lot of time and focus and energy from, well, it took it from me as the business owner. So I can see a lot of people just wanting to avoid them and the time and energy that goes into it. And I think that would apply the same for combines investigations or competition policy investigations. The other thing I'd like to see is if we started doing more investigations and market studies is I'd love to see these being done regionally, right? Like I'd love to see competition bureau offices set up at a minimum in all the provincial capitals and maybe some more in the larger provinces. Right. And so, like I said, talking about it, I think it was in episode two, I was talking about it. A merger in Nova Scotia can have an outsized impact on the local economy, but not reach the merger thresholds where that has to be reported to the Bureau. And so we need a way to balance this. And if there was a, like a local Bureau office that was able to, you know, look at the local economy and look at the regional economy, they may be able to find different ways or different things that are going on here. And the other thing I was thinking about with this is it's like we set the threshold at an amount that impacts the national economy or could potentially negatively affect the national economy. But I guess I was thinking about like, I don't interact with the national economy. I interact with my local economy, you know, or at most like the regional economy, right? Like I go out and buy something from the shop owner or the store in town, the producer locally, 
you know, Nova Scotia Power, the town of Amherst, Bell Alliance, like those may be more regional ones. And eventually these things all add up to the national economy, but I don't go out and buy from the national economy. All, all the transactions are local and individual for me. And I think we need the Competition Bureau to be spread across the country to ensure that all the local economies that make up our national economy are competitive, free, and working in the way that we want. Will we get all this right now? Not so sure, but this is the time for us to speak up and talk about it, especially with this review coming. And CG had a a panel discussion a couple weeks ago with Commissioner Boswell, and he was talking about how he wants competition policy to become more accessible to everybody. And so I think they're starting to look for voices and opinions from all of us. And this is something that we can start to share, that we want our competition bureau and our government to start coming out and looking at the smaller and the regional and local economies and being proactive and pushing forward to investigate these things to make sure that they're working in the way that we want. And that's something that we can express and that we can share as this review gains steam and moves forward. So I hope you've enjoyed my sort of discussion and thoughts around the article, The Trade Secrets of the Combines Detectives by Peter C. Newman from McLean's Magazine. There's still a lot in there that I didn't even touch on that adds more flavor and color to this whole discussion and thoughts. So there's a link in the show notes. Please, if you've got some time, go take a look go read it. And please, if you enjoyed this podcast, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts or at Spotify. Thank you again for listening. I'll be back with another episode moving on to a new article. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.